Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Jeremy Hunt. Dr. Hunt is widely regarded as one of Australia's leading plastic surgeons, having worked with thousands of patients during his 15-year career. Dr. Hunt practices out of his rooms in both Sydney and Wollongong and offers a wide range of cosmetic procedures, including but not limited to face and neck lifts, breast augmentation and body contouring. Dr. Hunt is the spokesperson for the Australian Society of Plastic Surgery and supervisor of plastic surgery training at Sydney Children's Hospital. Dr. Hunt is also a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. Good morning again, uh, Dr. Hunt. How are you? Very well, thanks, guys. Thanks for coming back. You've agreed to come back in for another another round with us. So uh, obviously, wasn't too much, too bad the first time. So th- thank you for coming back. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so today we are talking about massive weight loss surgery. And I, as we were talking before we went went on air about this is, I guess, a new term that's sort of been bandied around. And I guess, could you give us a little bit of an understanding of exactly what it is and what it means? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, we've gone through a bit of a revolution in terms of health and lifestyle uh, so that there's a big, big health boom. And then there's been a big increase in the number of patients who are considering having weight loss surgery. So what used to be lap banding surgery has moved into gastric bypasses and gastric sleeves. And there are there's a large population of patients who, for all the right reasons, are trying to induce, reduce their weight. And for some people, it is really a massive weight reduction. So there'll be patients who will be losing 50, 60, 100 kilograms of weight. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. And then as those patients do lose the weight, they sort of encounter different problems with body contouring, which has led to the sort of this new area of massive weight loss surgery. So just to clarify, your role in this is to trim off the excess uh, skin and and tissue once they've lost all of that weight, but the lap banding and gastric banding, that's all done by a different surgeon called a bariatric surgeon. So in in the specialty of medicine, there'll be the bariatric surgeons who will do the the weight loss procedures and then us as plastic surgeons and reconstructive surgeons will address the issues of excess loose skin that arise once that that volume has disappeared. Mm. So basically the people lose the weight and then they come to you to basically make it all look good again or try oh. and look presentable again. Yeah, absolutely. And pe- people will come to me with, with, I want to try and look good again. And then people often have a lot of functional problems because, you know, as you... The analogy of, you know, as you lose the weight, you let the air out of the balloon. The balloon, the skin will hold its shape for a while and then enough volume goes and it'll start to collapse. Mm. So the patients can come in with, you know, skin rubbing on skin, on their tummy, on their thighs, their arms. So it's an appearance problem for a lot of people, uh, but for a huge proportion of patients, it's a functional problem. It's a, mm. it's a real quality of life issue. And they've done a great job unlocking the health benefits by losing the weight, but they're sort of trapped in terms of lifestyle in their old skin. Yeah. I remember you'd see these, uh, the biggest loser show on TV and you'd see these amazing transformations with people that have lost hundreds of kilos, or maybe not hundreds, but it'll, significant amounts of weight. And then they all go and have these, this surgery done because of the skin that's left behind. Yeah, absolutely. And do, do you think that, um, again, just looking, coming at it from, a, I guess, a non-medical perspective, is there a benefit to losing the weight more slowly as opposed to quicker? I mean, are they going to, a patient's going to have less loose skin or redundant skin issues if they're losing the weight at a slower rate or does it not matter? It's it, In terms of the loose skin they get, it's 
there's not a huge difference. Right. But in terms of their general health, mm. there'll be recommendations on what is a safe volume of weight to lose on a week to week basis. Mm. So that, uh, you know, losing, losing two kilos in a week by starving yourself is doable, but you can't do that week after week after week after week. So mm. the recommendation is patients really should be looking at losing, you know, half a kilo to a kilo a week in the longer term, which means these patients will potentially have their, you know, their bariatric surgery or they'll decide to go on a fitness and weight loss program and then some 12 months later they will have lost the said 50 60 kilos and that's when they'll come and see us mm. that's an incredible weight loss for just a diet isn't it that's insane and people tell people will tell you stories that just make you understand where they've come from and where they've gotten to so you'll often see people holding up a pair of jeans that they used to wear and they'll now fit you know their significant other and themselves into those jeans it's just uh, it's just amazing it, it and I think about my patients and I think if I threw a 20 kilogram bag of cement on my shoulders <laughs> let alone one on each shoulder and tried to go up and down a flight of stairs I would really struggle so for these patients to have lost you know 80 kilos four big bags of cement just the weight coming down a set of stairs is such a huge difference in terms of, you know, the quality of their life, but they're still sort of trapped and burdened in terms of clothes and sporting activities in, in the excess skin. Yeah, right. So you, you were talking about the functional issues. What about um, just, you know, the skin rubbing, Absolutely. just hanging there and, and how yeah. do they buy clothes? And it must be a nightmare. It, you know, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, form wear that's worn to try and keep things tucked into the appropriate place. And then, you know, the hotter months over summer are, are really quite challenging for a lot of people mm. because it is hot and it's sweaty and there's skin on skin. And then, you know, we lead to... You know, rashes and infection issues and then they in themselves pose medical problems yeah. so that there is a very very good medical reason for these patients to address these concerns yeah i, I was going to ask is this type of operation available publicly for those reasons like functional or medical issues rather than cosmesis yeah there are so the there is a these procedures are recognized by Medicare as being medical. Yeah. And then the way health runs in Australia is that we have different area health services mm -hmm. so that in different area health services, different public hospitals will, some of them do provide these services. And then in other areas, it's not available as yet. Yeah. But the government's certainly aware that this is a, you know, an increasing problem and there's a bit of a move to providing that service. Mm. So how many of these might you do a year, let's say? How, how common is it? It it's one of those procedures that's on the increase so that the challenge is that patients will present with often quite complicated problems so it's not that they often come in looking for a for a tummy tuck they're coming in looking for you know thigh surgery tummy tuck buttock lift arm surgery potentially in women breast surgery yeah. so there's there's a lot of surgical procedures involved yeah. so that you do need to sit down and stage these patients and make sure they're looked after safety and effectively. Yeah. But it's definitely on the increase. And presumably you have to have some evidence of having a stable weight prior to embarking on offering definitive surgery for something like this. Yeah, so there are, um, there are some recommendations. The recommendations are going to be that we want to see the patients at a stable weight for a good six months. Six months, all right. We're yeah. probably looking at treating patients some 12 months after their initial you know, weight loss commencement yeah the the bariatric surgeons is the, is the term we use for the surgeons who perform you know lap bands and gastric sleeves and gastric bypasses they they know that the patients will lose weight quite effectively and rapidly they'll actually dip down and then maybe dip up to a stable point yeah and that stable point is around about 12 months after surgery okay so we do want people not on the the weight decline we want them stable and then they're really optimal candidates what do you th when you say do you, do you think this procedure is on the rise do you think it's because there's more people that are overweight or more people that are discovering this procedure I think if you look at the, certainly in the states they talk about the, the obesity epidemic so that uh, we very much culturally follow the United States. So Australia very rapidly is becoming a nation that realizes that there's a large portion of the population with with weight issues and that those issues have long-term consequences. And 
people, patients have become aware of the downsides. So then there are more people seeking options for weight loss, be it through surgical choices or just lifestyle diet and exercise. So we're definitely going to keep seeing this and it's going to become more and more frequent. Yeah, right. It's, um, it's scary when you, it's, it's crazy when you think about we've got um, so many people in the world that don't have enough food and then we've got this other half of the world that seems to have more food than we know what to do with to the point where we, we get ourselves to this to this physical state. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Yep. Mm. Before we get onto the, the surgery itself, what sort of psychological state are these people in? Because they've done an incredible job to either do it through a diet, lose you know, 50, 100 kilos, that's amazing. But then they're still living in this well, obviously deformed kind of body now. Absolutely, yeah. So how how do they present to you in, in your consultation? So they will they will come to see me at different points on their weight loss journey so that there'll be a time when my treatment is appropriate and that's when they've lost their weight. And in terms of, you know, the weight loss commencement with bariatric surgery, there's often a psychologist or a some sort of psychiatric assessment made in that unit to ensure the patient is safely on the journey. So by the time they they get to me, they've achieved their weight loss and they know it's been good for them. But in their mind, very often they still see themselves as being that larger person Mm. because of the excess skin. Yeah. So I'll I'll hear stories of people walking walking into the clothing department and instead of going to the size 10 or 12 dress, they'll head to the 22 because that's what they see. Yeah. And unburdening them of that and letting them see themselves as that 10 or 12 is really what it's all about. And yet can they fit into a 10 with, you know, literally an apron of skin and, and well, tissue hanging off. That is exactly. So the, the, so the 10 or 12 is a better fit for them than the 22, but they just don't feel comfortable in that 10 or 12 when really they've earned the right to. Yeah. So my job is really to talk about contour and talk about shape and then achieve something that, you know, means they can just walk in and buy clothes off the rack. Yeah. I can imagine from a patient's perspective that that loose skin might almost be as uh, disturbing as the, as the actual volume of, of fat itself. Like just having that skin Absolutely. hanging down almost yes. looks more deformed yes. than being fat. Yep. So I can imagine that would be like another mental hurdle to, to get past. And that yes. would be very, yes. I think for just from my perspective, thinking about it, putting myself in that position, it would be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then, and and a lot of this surgery is going to involve removals of large, large amounts of skin, which is then going to result in, you know, quite often significant scarring. And we will try to hide that scar underneath underwear. But in the, in many of my patients' minds, that scar is so much more acceptable than the skin that they're seeing. And in a, in a number of patients, they've said to me that almost having that scar is almost like their badge of honor. Yeah. They have done the journey and they have achieved the the result and they have said goodbye to that psychological burden and now they're getting on with it. They're wearing swimsuits at the beach, they're running around chasing the kids, they're playing sport and it's really really quite life-changing. In terms of those scars, how significant are they um, I guess, do they affect different people in different ways, I guess, in terms of like ethnicities, um, age, and then are we getting better at dealing with them? Is there going to come a time where you think those scars are going to be able to be made so insignificant that you can barely notice them? That would, that would, be, that would be a great day when that day comes. <laughs> so that at the moment, unfortunately, all any incision in the skin is going to result in a scar and that's just the healing process. And then what we need to do technically is make the, the scars as minimal as we can and then try and keep them hidden below underwear lines. Uh, but there will be a scar. And, and you're right that the different people will scar to different degrees. So classically, a darker skinned person will develop a thicker type of scar. There's uh, familial tendencies towards what people will call keloid scars or hypertrophic scars. And we need to be aware of those. And then we need to implement treatments to try and minimize them. And then at the moment, we have we have some options that will involve sort of pressure therapy and massage and potentially some forms of laser. 
And, you know, who knows what medicine has in the future? We've made amazing. If you think what we we're doing 20, 30 years ago, in 20 or 30 years' time, there may be the the pill, the, va- the magic vitamin that makes scars evaporate and disappear. So we, we live in hope of that day. Yeah, right. I'm going to share a funny story. I think I've told you this. No. So when I, was a, I think I was a third-year poor medical student. I came across a little thing in a journal for people or volunteers wanted to improve scars. Mm -hmm. So there was a little lab literally next door to the medical school and I I put my head in and the money was great. You're a lab (laughs) rat, okay. So to cut a long story short, I um, I don't know if you can see, um, on the bottom of each underarm, can you see any little scars anywhere? They're pretty subtle. Yeah, so I think (laughs) basically they randomised everyone into one underarm having three cuts on one side and one on the other and I think I had placebo on one arm and this new magic medicine in the other and that's crazy that's great that's what you do when you're in medical school well that is true I could tell you similar stories we all but um I don't think I noticed any difference in 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 the drug or the placebo so so I've got a bit of a, a silly question um once you remove that skin does the body make more skin? Like how does that, I'm just trying to think, picture it from a, from a patient perspective. You remove these large amounts of skin when you, when the people come in and present these, these excess amounts after the weight loss, when you, when you remove that skin, is it just a matter of bringing the two bits of the skin that are left together? And like, is it, where does that extra skin come from to, to join them together? Is it, Sorry, silly question. I'm just no, trying. no, very good question. So, if you think that uh, I often say to the patients that skin skin is like a, a hair scrunchie, right? So, when it's fresh out of the packet, you can pull it and stretch it, and it'll spring back into place. If you pull it and stretch it to an extreme amount, with say a large amount of weight gain, and then let go with a large amount of weight loss, there's just fundamentally too much scrunchy left and you need to take a section out to shorten it the trick for us is to get the right amount out so you want to take enough to get a nice taut result without taking too much to leave you short of skin gosh that'd be a bit of an awkward situation you've removed <laughs> yeah, you can't is, bring the sides back together again you, you know you, that that's the one you're looking joke about it but i, I mean gosh, oh, that that's be... the, honestly that's the one that you you train to avoid right that's the one that you really shouldn't see happening well, it's also one thing to have them lying on a bed paralyzed under ga but another to stand up stretch move their arms that is exactly right yeah, so that's there's a different yeah right kettle of fish and i guess every patient's elasticity is going to be different so you're going to have to how do you do that? How do you, you know, you might be treating patient, uh, you know, in their 60s, female, being overweight her whole life versus someone who's in their 30s, different skin type, male. Like I'm, I'm assuming it's a different surgical procedure. You've like predicting how much you're going to be able to cut out. So you're going to have enough left. How do you, how do, you do that? So it's going it, to, the, the procedures are always going to be based on the same sort of principles. Right. And then you have the fundamental principle that you then, you're right, you do need to apply it to the individual so that, as you say, a, a woman in her 30s might undergo the same procedure as a woman in her 60s, but that procedure will be tailored by experience to make sure that each patient gets the best outcome possible. And then, as you say, too, men are a totally different surgical yeah. kettle of fish from women because the, the shape they're looking for, the expectations, even the position of the scars have to be tailored to fit right. that individual. Is there much difference between the male and female skin? Is, it, is the male skin thicker? Does it have less elast- elasticity or does it yeah, so, much of a muchness. So classically speaking, male skin is thicker. We are we are the tough skinned, right. rubbery guys, but we are also the less sun aware guys. Right. So classically, male skin thicker and tougher, but less elastic because there's more sun damage. Right. Okay. So we, we screw ourselves over with yeah, the advantage just, just through self abuse and yeah, badly behaved <laughs> yeah, lifestyle right. choices. Um. So Jeremy, let's go on to what actual procedures we're talking about here so can you reel through the most common down to the least common okay and then maybe what is the most newest if you like yes so please go for it so it is it is one of those things where if someone does you know drop their weight from 180 kilos to 80 kilos and i've got lots of patients like that that they will have lost weight from the top of their head to the tip of their toes so they'll often come in with a number of body areas and then each patient will have their their most concerning area but for me it always sort of falls into four little 
sections. Mm. So for most patients, it's going to be the the tummy, the you know the abdominal excess skin they have. So that may require an abdominoplasty or a tummy tuck. And if that excess skin extends over the hips and flanks, then they may require an extended abdominoplasty. <clears throat> and then if there's weight loss in the buttocks and drop in the buttocks, then they may require what's called a, a lower body lift, which is sort of the circumferential all the way around procedure. So do you literally get a scalpel, <clears throat> cut all the way around, trim away the excess and, and, and pull up like a pair of trousers? That is exactly what we do. So when I'm explaining it to my patients in the office, I will actually stand up and I will, it's just like taking a pair of tracksuit pants where the elastic has gone on the waist yeah. and they're down around your hips and just pulling the pants back up again. Wow. And that is, is a lower body lift. And that honestly is probably the foundation procedure for weight loss surgery mm. because as, as you say, Dave, there, you know, there's there's lots of moving parts. So if there's extra skin around the chest and there's extra skin around the tummy and everything's sort of moving, you need to get some foundation. So for me, the lower body lift is sort of the first procedure I'm going to look to do Yeah, because it has potentially the biggest benefit for the patients and it then sets the the, the baseline for where the other pieces of tissue need to move around. Yeah. And, you know, if patients do come in and they'll say, look, I want, I want to do my arms, I want to do my tummy and my thighs and I need breast surgery, that is, that's just a, that's massive. That's a massive amount of surgery. Yeah. So we're looking to sit down and break them into staged procedures. So a lower body lift will often go first. Uh, for me, there's a procedure I'll then address. So the upper body, which might be the arms and the breast, and then there's a third procedure, there might be something on the thighs. So classically, patients are broken into sections yeah. for one for predictability and two importantly for safety because the body can only undergo so much healing in one one sitting and safety predictability allows to move from one one result to the next and get a final outcome yeah wow. so patients really do need to think that it again it's going to be a bit of a journey it's going to be stage one followed by recuperation, followed by stage two and potentially stage three. And then different surgeons will put intervals between those and different patients will need different intervals. But it's maybe a 12-month undertaking. Wow. And I guess, sorry, that, that allows you to make sure that the weight really is stable as well, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess also their healing capacity, if you have any problems, you, at least you haven't embarked on the whole oh, body exactly with right. multiple scars. And Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the body, I, I say to my patients that, uh, you know, it's like a car trip. You're heading out of the garage, you've got a tank full of petrol, which is your vitamins and minerals and your proteins, and that car as you further head further and further down the surgical journey, you're, <clears throat> you're burning up more and more petrol. You better have enough petrol to turn around and get back home again or we'll stall the car mm. and that is where you get into trouble. Mm. So don't stack one procedure on another, on another, on another. There'll be a point and I'll have a level of comfort where I'll say that is reasonable in, say, my 25-year-old patient, which is then not reasonable in my, say, 65-year-old patient. Um, and I would think, and I might be overgeneralizing here, um, that patients that have gotten to this point um, from, from a weight loss perspective, um, that they probably don't have the best uh, like eating habits or understanding of, of uh, getting vitamins and minerals in their body. So is, I guess, was there an, is there an increased risk with these patients that they actually don't have enough of the good stuff going into their body when they're recovering from these kind of surgeries? Yeah, absolutely. It's very true. So the body, the body's a very smart, smart little beast. So the, the body sort of remembers what it was like when the patients were carrying the extra weight. So although you might be sitting at 80, 80, 90 kilos, someone who was 180 kilos sitting at 80, 90 kilos, their body and their tissue doesn't behave like someone who's not been on that weight loss journey. So they have a fundamental lower level of protein, lower levels of vitamins and minerals, and quite often we'll test for those before the operation. And then patients may need to go on to various supplements to make sure they are topped up before we do head on that car trip and then some of the surgical procedures can lead to changes in the way the gut absorbs various vitamins and minerals so they need to be addressed as well so it really is um it's, it's very holistic in a way mm. Mm. going back to the abdominoplasty 
what's the difference between that and an apronectomy? So that uh, an, an apronectomy will be a procedure that really just addresses the, the overhang of excess skin. Sure. Whereas an abdominoplasty is going to be a more invasive procedure that's really looking to address contour of the entire abdomen. Yeah. So it might add in things like liposuction and then potentially, if it's after pregnancy, tightening of muscles that have split apart. Okay. So an abdominoplasty is really looking to treat the entire abdomen, yeah. whereas an apronectomy is just looking to address that, remove that excess skin. Yeah. And, and then, would you reposition the tummy button, the belly button? So it looks more? Yes, yes, yes. I'm so, trying to put this into layman's terms for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, we like, we like, we like. No, I've I never heard it called not. tummy button before. I've always heard belly button. I hadn't heard tummy. Is that, is that a British thing or is that just I a Jake know. thing? Maybe it's just me. Ah. No, I'm big. I'm, <laughs> Maybe it's I'm happy to call it. Maybe it's daughter. I'll call it a tummy. I'll call it a tummy button. I mean, it's, it's all about trying to get the most shapely result. Mm. So for me, it's going to be a shapely, a shapely abdomen, a torso, which of course has a tummy button. Yeah. And I like to call it a tummy button too. <laughs> so that's just uh, me. I'm, just, I'm the odd one out. Okay. <laughs> we all have our little nuances. So a, a good looking tummy has a in a woman, let's say, has a shapely waistline that comes off the ribs, a tight cinched waist, and then goes down onto the hips. Exactly. And in the middle of that will be the tummy button. So nothing is as good as the original. So we do want to keep patients' original tummy buttons, and they do stay exactly where they started. So in, a, in an abdominoplasty or any of the body contouring abdominal procedures, that tummy button you have at the end is the tummy button you started with at the beginning. It's just been everything around it has been moved. So when it was around your knees... You, you, are you are you literally removing it from the excess skin and then restitching it back where it should be? Well, you see, if you think that your tummy button is a bit like an ice cream cone, it's got a big wide mouth and it goes down to a very narrow stalk to a narrow base. Even if your tummy button looks like it's at the knees, the stalk is still attached to the muscles on your tummy. Sure. So we might take a very deep, long, wide ice cream cone and then downsize that to the tummy button bit we want to keep which is the bit that's attached to the muscles yeah and then that will be that will come back out through the redraped skin mm-hmm. but it is always the original tummy button and it's a very good question because most patients really struggle with what happens to my tummy button yeah because they do see it as uh, being in the wrong place yes I, I have when i did plastics years ago I, I have done an apronectomy and it just looks weird it's just like to not have a, a tummy button it just looks odd yeah i'm, I'm with you so you know, there are techniques to, you know, you definitely want to keep the tummy button and then there are techniques to try and make that tummy button look aesthetically pleasing. So it's very complicated, the tummy button. There are certain angles and certain overhang and certain shapes that will, <clears throat> you know, if you put a hundred tummy buttons in front of a hundred people, yeah, oddly enough, people will choose the same shape as being the aesthetically pleasing one. Can you turn an outie to an innie? We can turn an outie to an innie. <laughs> okay. The problem is turning an innie to an outie, but we can go Do people ask for that? In. We get asked to do all sorts of things. Wow. That's, yes. I can't get that. That's weird. Yeah. I guess, yeah, yeah it's, it would be like having a, like a nipple would be the same thing as yeah, the, like an identifier. It just makes you look like a human, I guess, having that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, okay, so we've done abdominoplasty sort of mixed with the body lift. Mm-hmm. I think you next said buttock, was that right? So for me, an abdominoplasty, be it an abdominoplasty or an apronectomy, really is, it, it's a 360 degree operation. Oh, sorry, so that was... So it, it's yeah. going to go around, see, but the patients will find they've got the extra skin at the front, but they also have the extra skin potentially over the hips, and then they'll yeah. find that they're bottom has deflated and headed south. So when I'm assessing someone's tummy, it's going to be a 360 degree assessment. And then there are honestly about seven different tummy tucks that I will do. And one of those will suit each individual patient particularly better than the other. Yeah, And it's going to involve some sort of buttock operation. So patients have become more astute, they've become more aware, and rightly so, and they have asked us to move from just being a skin removal procedure to a skin removal and reshaping procedure. Mm. And the buttock has become very, very important. So the 
and and culturally that's become something that's now part of our culture yeah so that things like butterco augmentation uh, everybody knows about them Kim Kardashian high profile on that front so patients are looking for a shapely bottom so we've developed techniques to augment or increase buttocks to get better shapes because we're aware of the limitations of procedures we we're doing maybe five or ten years ago yeah what's your take on the the BBL the Brazilian butt lift in terms of that social media led drive to get a, a, a perkier bum what's your sort of what's the ideal aesthetic for a bottom from a plastic surgeon's point of view see there are it's going to it's going to be very cultural. So you're going to get Doctor Hunt in trouble, uh, Jake. Well, no, 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 I'm happy happy to talk to this one. So there are some very there are some very good studies out there where they talk about the ratio between the waistline and then the weight the the circumference around the waist and the circumference around the hips. Yes, and you can pick five different body type shapes and you can show them to different cultural groups, and different people will pick different. Aesthetics. Yeah. So, it's we've known for a long time that the say the South Americans are more attracted to a sort of thinner waist with a larger bottom. Mm. The North Americans are attracted to sort of a smaller bottom with a larger breast, and we sort of sit somewhere somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But the concept of a bigger bottom has certainly taken off through social media. Uh, it was started by you know Jennifer Lopez wearing a particular dress on the red carpet at the Golden Globes one year, and then Kim Kardashian, and so the the BBL or Brazilian butt lift is a procedure to increase the volume of the bottom. Yeah, and then the options to increase volume are really going to be to use a Brazilian butt lift, which is using your own fat and transferring it, or to use a form of implant, which has notoriously been fraught with difficulty. Yeah. Or in in my weight loss patients, to try and use the tissue on the lower back or the bottom that formerly we would have thrown away, but to almost post that tissue underneath the skin of the bottom, almost like a a pillow going underneath the doona yeah. to create more projection. And for me, that really is now the gold standard. And that's the procedure that I'll offer the patients because that's what they want. They want the skin gone and they want shape. So that's called an autologous BBL for want of a better word. Yeah. So autologous being, you know, the Latin translation roughly just being your own tissue. Mm -hmm. So we're not using any silicon implants. And then it's your own tissue that's... Uh, going to be repositioned and it's equivalent it's another version of just putting more volume into the bottom yeah sorry just to, to clarify when you say tissue you're talking like fat correct yes as opposed to kleenex right yeah okay <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you yeah. this is the problem with medicine is yeah. we talk about these terms very freely yeah and don't realize that what what we say to the layperson may yeah, be totally different. Well, yeah, I guess that's why I'm here to sort of ask the, the dumb questions. But yeah, so, you, so you're so you doing the massive weight loss procedure and then so there's still obviously fat to be taken uh, even after they've lost all that fat. So yes. you would do like a, an, an additional liposuction component and yeah. then you would take that and reposition it under the under the buttocks. Very true. So okay. so in all of all the body contouring procedures I'll do, there will be some liposuction. And then for an autologous buttock augmentation, I'm inclined not to use the fat that we've taken with the liposuction, but to if people people who are in the circumstance of thinking they need a lower body lift, they'll know what I'm talking about. It's when you stand in the mirror and you grab that wad that sits on the lower back at your belt line and you pinch it and the bottom comes up. And that's really what we want. So formerly we would have taken that, that tissue that you've pinched and that would have been discarded. Now we will leave that tissue there and we'll take the fat that's under the skin still attached to the body and post it like the pillow under the doona underneath to sort of almost double the volume of the bottom and so give curve. Like a block of fat. It's a block, a yes. Liquid fat. Yes, because the beauty is if it's left there, it's a block, it's still attached to the body and still has blood flow, so it's mm -hmm. far more reliable. So you're like re just repositioning it. Yes, and okay. as, as you say, the Brazilian butt lift, you know, it, it took off. Uh, it was a very popular procedure and, you know, it, it maybe has been called into question in terms of long-term results. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm looking for the most predictable safest most reliable operation do it once do it properly good result 
Slightly getting off point, but what was the problem with the implants in the buttock? Why are they notoriously dangerous or, or poor outcomes? So I would say that it's almost like taking two tennis balls and trying to sit on two tennis balls while rocking around and hoping that those two tennis balls are not going to move in position or squirt out to the sides. Oh my goodness. <laughs> or yeah, socially awkward or take it, yeah, or trying to sit on two balloons while not having one of them squelch in a different direction. Mm. Wow. So the implants really were like trying to put your body weight onto a some a silicon implant similar to a breast implant yeah. and not have it squelch out in a different direction. So, yeah. so it's it's the functional aspect and the weight. Yes. Not so much just the material. No. Or, it was more the load they were put under and yeah. the question of asking them to stay in the same position. So they notoriously move into different positions. Mm. Well, that makes sense because I know like women, for example, that have had breast implant surgery will struggle to get a massage when they have to lie down on a table to get to get put. It's actually quite awkward. They need like yeah. a special table or yeah. they find it very uncomfortable. So I guess... I think there's a niche to design a new massage two table. There are two little yeah. holes. Yeah. That's, cool. That's cool. Thinking around, thinking outside the box. <laughs> there you go, Jake. New business venture. <laughs> yeah. um, and sorry, finally, just to, to complete this, it just come to mind. There were, there were some cases, I think, in South America where they were injecting liquid silicon Oh yes, into the buttock and and killing people. Oh yes, there's there's a, there's a number of cases where if if the concept is if the concept is there and the the demand is there, yeah. that some people will want to cut corners mm. and maybe try and provide a service when they're not well trained and not necessarily use the correct materials. So there are lots of stories of people injecting, honestly, liquid cement. Cement? Yes. There's a great case of a lady oh in the God. States known as the Black Widow who, you know, did a nice beauty salon business out of her bedroom and... Uh, there's talk of liquid cement going into buttocks. There's oh. there's all sorts of materials getting oh put in. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and it always it just comes back again to that. We need that, to get her on. God. God. She sounds like she sounds like a hard ass. Yeah, she's... she's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think she's tied up for about the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah, but, yeah. Fair gosh, enough. My goodness. Um, she's got to do a procedure. She's got to go down to nip down to Bunnings and grab some liquids. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. It's, and it comes down to that thing of, you know, just, just do your research. Just check that the practitioner who's providing you the service is qualified to do it. If you're listening, go to Dr. Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> well, just make sure. Just, just make sure you go to someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I guess talking about the, uh, the body lifting uh, procedure as a whole, when you're getting to the breast area, and I guess we, we, um, we spoke to Dr. Marathi a little bit about breast augmentation and, and reconstructive surgery. Is this something that you would then build into that procedure as well as, a, I guess, for, for, for men and women, but particularly women, deal with that augmentation side of things as well? Would you, um, I guess, use implants and those sorts of things when you get to that region of the body for someone that's had massive weight loss? Yeah, we are because, I mean... I think, as I say, patients will lose their weight from the top of their head to the tip of their toes. Right. So women who formerly may have had, you know, more ample bust or cup size may find themselves just totally deflated. Mm -hmm. So we're going to face issues of, you know, there will be excess skin to deal with, we'll be missing volume, and then we may need to lift the nipple up into a higher position. So... In the weight loss patients, we're definitely looking to replace volume and an implant is probably the the number one most reliable, most predictable tool we have for replacing significant volumes. So yeah, we do use breast implants and often in conjunction with a breast lift right. because things have, just like that tummy button, heads down to your knees, things can often head south. And then it really does, so for me it becomes, if, if I think about the lower body being a 360 degree operation, then the upper body for me is a again a 360 degree operation and it often focuses in the patient's mind on on the breast the volume the height of the nipple but patients will find that there's an excess skin fold that extends around the side at the level of the bra strap and then there might be excess skin that goes up into the arm and in some cases there'll be excess skin that goes around the back at the level of the bra straps it needs to be you know, reduced in volume and then we're into procedures that we sort of term upper body lifts and that in itself say a breast lift with a breast implant with arm surgery is a big surgical undertaking. Mm. So that needs to be, and for me, that's often stage two. So stage one will be set the foundation with the body, lower body lift, then honestly put the roof on the house with an upper body lift and then 
come back and address the thighs as a third operation. Right. Because you can't be pulling and pushing in different directions at once. Yeah. Is that something that you would offer men as well? Because presumably they're going to have rolls of fat around the torso, gynecomastia or, or large breasts. So is it basically the same thing? You're just, again, trimming away that tire around the chest and... and it, it, it really is. It's going to be. It's going to be about contour uh, and achieving the best contour possible. So in in women, it's it's a little easier because things can be hidden under a under a bikini top. Yeah. In men, it's going to be more challenging because it's harder to hide those scars. But men are really looking to be able to wear a business shirt or to wear a t shirt comfortably, yeah. and the scars are hidden. And yeah, in this day and age at the beach happily wear a rash shirt uh, without that troublesome excess skin. I'll just tell people I got attacked by a shark and, and make up some story. <laughs> so I tell you, some no. heroic story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God. And with this, again, you say obviously people lose weight from the top of their head to the tip of their toes. So with this, last time you here we spoke about facelifts and neck lifts. Yes, is this something true. that would sort of... Um, sort of uh, would this sort of become part of that as well like getting facelifts and neck lifts done with this side of as well and do you see a lot of volume loss from the face and the neck region with these people or is it they face tends to be a bit more forgiving you you do see patients who you know losing volume is very aging so if you think about you think about your grandmother that gaunt hollow look is very aging so that when patients do lose weight a lot of people will have a lot of trouble particularly in the neck with just that extra skin in the middle that turkey goblin neck Mm -hmm. so they will and that's where you know at the initial consultation of the meeting it's going to be you know tell me what your concerns are and put them in a list of priorities and then we'll work out how we're going to address them systematically and safely and neck lifts and face lifts do become part of, you know, massive weight loss surgery. Gosh, sounds like this initial consultation process almost sounds like a a meeting with like an architect or a a builder. You're sort of drawing plans and when we're going to do stage one and stage two and stage three and this is how long you need between and these are the materials that we need. Absolutely, sounds like it's a it's a full full on. It is. It is. It's. It's very. It. It is full. It is full on. It's very. It's very comprehensive. And as you say, everyone's going to be different. So that's why you know I often hear. Patients will want to fly to somewhere, fly to fly to somewhere in Southeast Asia and have this procedure done. And I'll say, you know, but it's not it's not just an operation. It's the it's the sitting down and planning how we're going to address your concerns and get you there safely. And it is a full on planning session. The first consultation is, you know, meet and greet, assess the problem, come up with a logical plan. There's a second consultation to confirm the plan before the procedure happens. And then there's all the follow up for after the operation. And they're the things that patients do get when they have a procedure done, say, in in their home country, but you miss when you fly to another country. Yeah. And then if you have complications, I guess, or questions, or you're freaking out about something that you actually don't have access to your surgeon to talk to. So what you know, may initially appear quite appealing to fly to a, you know, a tropical destination and have a massive surgical procedure probably isn't that appealing on the tail end. And as you say, particularly if something doesn't go to plan or you have a concern. Mm, Gosh. And what is the recovery process like on these procedures? I'm I'm envisaging, you know, scalpels and skin coming out and, and, and it sounds quite painful. Obviously the patient's asleep during the procedure, but in terms of dealing with the aftermath of having this sort of volume of, of procedure undertaken on you. How does that, how do patients deal with that and what's it like? It, uh, it really is uh, some of the biggest surgery we do. Right. So patients do need to just be mindful that, you know, you want to do it once, you want to do it properly. So it's going to happen in, you know, a fully accredited hospital. There'll be an in-hospital stay. They've, and after discharge, there's going to be some time at home just recuperating. So I do tell patients who are thinking about major abdominal contouring that maybe in their mind it's a four-week exercise. Right. We may be spending, you know, multiple days, even up to six or seven days in hospital after a lower body lift. And then the first week at home will be sort of on the lounge and the second week's out the front door and the third right. week's getting around the block. And then by four weeks, we're getting back to work. Right. <clears throat> and then there's the... 
And if it is a multiple stage procedure and then there's the recuperation until you sort of recharge the tank of vitamins and minerals and proteins so that you can consider the next procedure. Yeah, right. So this is it's not like just having a breast augmentation or a facelift. This yeah, this is, is actually yeah, this is not this the, is a whole this is a whole nother level. Yeah, this is not the lunchtime lift type right, stuff. Okay. Uh, presumably just sleeping after a lower body lift, that's gonna be painful, uncomfortable, risk of tearing stitches out yes, and yes. Th- is that why they're in hospital for pretty much a week just to <clears throat> so every every surgeon is going to be different with the way they approach the problem but for me i want my patients to want want to be comfortable so that there are certain medications so the injectable painkillers and things that patients will need in that first period so that's really an in-hospital service yeah there will be drains where we've done operations and then closed skin over the top. We don't want any fluid on the inside. So there'll be drains in place. And then my patients are on a, on what we call a low air loss bed because they do, they have an incision on the front around the sides and around the back. And that low air loss bed is sort of analogous to an air hockey table Mm. where it's a mattress full of air that's then full of holes, which are just floating air up under the patient. The patient's literally just floating on I want one of those just for now. That sounds great. Oh, they're great. (laughs) They're great. So for first, you know, first week, that's part of my part of my key to avoiding patients lying on wounds. And when they're at home, we sort of we've moved to a more stable time, and there will be instructions on what to do and what not to do. Yeah. Um, I guess we'd sort of be um, not doing our duty if we didn't sort of uh, ask you about all the things that can go wrong with these procedures and complications. So could you maybe just give us a little bit of a rundown of you know, what can go wrong and how, how we deal with it and how common they are and yeah. so on. So, I mean, all, all surgery potentially has risks mm-hmm. and then the more the more invasive a procedure get, the higher the risk profile gets. Sure. So being one of the bigger procedures we do, this one does carry some substantial downsides. So I tend to tell people that I think about risks in terms of, you know, simply the good, the bad and the ugly. So I want good and I want you in hospital, follow the instructions, well-informed, home you go, no complications. Bad, bad, it's a nuisance, but it's not the end of the world. And that's going to include things like wound infections, collections of fluid, wound breakdown is very common, and wound wounds not healing properly might range from something the size of, you know, the fingernail on your little finger not healing properly to something more substantial. And then they may involve prolonged dressings or we might need to go back to an operating theatre. And then, you know, we've got the good, we've got the bad, and then we've just got the ugly and we don't want ugly. So that not done properly, not done in the right facility, these operations carry, you know, risks of major life-risking complications. Uh, So we want to do them well, we want to do them in real hospitals and you want to do them with backups. So you need you need good anaesthetists, you need good nursing staff, and they're the things that we as surgeons want to try and surround ourselves with to make sure the patients are sort of wrapped in cotton wool. And then you inform your patients so that if something is not quite right, they know what to look for and they get in touch with you and you fix a small problem early before it becomes a big problem. Mm. So there is a lot of um, there's a lot of interaction between the patient, the doctor and, and the nurses and my practice staff mm. to make sure everyone gets the best outcome possible. Not to get too surgical, but I remember back when I was doing bowel surgery, there was this concept of enhanced recovery. Mm-hmm. So patients would be pre-optimized, so they would be on you know high-calorie drinks almost two hours before the operation. Yes, uh, mobilized early, early eating, and all of that stuff to try and get them healed as quickly as possible. Do you do that in plastics, or is it? Yeah. Not- so we are. You know, like, well, like all, sur- all surgeons are trying to evolve the art we perform to a higher standard. So there's a lot of research going on all the time. And there's, there's good evidence, that, as you say, pre-optimizing patients is going to be beneficial. So we want patients to have enough vitamin C on board to yeah. heal, enough protein on board. And it might involve protein drinks for a number of weeks before the operation to build those levels yeah. up. And then we're in, when we're in hospital, we, we know that some things are going to be beneficial. Getting up and moving is beneficial. Yeah. Getting out of bed is good for you. Um, and we're implementing all of these little little interventions yep. to make sure we optimize results. Yeah. Okay. Gosh. Um, how long does this procedure take? Sorry, I don't know if we covered that. How long were they actually on the operating table for, roughly? So a, a lower body lift mm. will vary between surgeon to surgeon, but we're somewhere between, you know, four to four to six hours wow, maybe. That's a, long, that's a long anesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. Can you 
go into a little bit more about the recovery and, and management of scars. This mm-hmm. is obviously something that they're going to be wearing like a battle wound for the yes. rest of their life. Yes. We, you know, we often get clients who've had a scar from years ago saying, oh, hey, doc, what can I do about this? And obviously it's already healed. But how can you optimize that healing once you've made that scar? Yeah. So there are there are things we can do to get the best scar possible. And then the, the, the difficulty or the challenge with surgery at the moment until we evolve to this next level is that all surgery, all incisions result in a scar. Mm. So we want the best scar possible. So from from my end, it's going to be to perform the surgery technically well. So I'm looking for sterile conditions and good instrumentation and then appropriate choices of stitches or sutures to make sure we get the best wound possible. Then falls onto my onto my nursing staff to make sure that that wound is then looked after in the short term, and then it falls onto the patient to sort of get the best result from the scar in the longer term. Mm. So we know that scars will mature over sort of about twelve months, and after the wound is healed, there are things that will make a difference to get a better scar. And really it's going to come down to some form of pressure on the scar helps. And that often comes in the form of silicon sheeting or taping. Mm. Massaging the scar is beneficial and we'll teach patients how to do that. And then keeping scars out of direct sunlight for the first three months is also beneficial in terms of decreasing pigmentation. Yeah. So we, there's, there's my end, there's my staff's end, and then there's the patient end. Okay. And everyone will be trying to get the best scar possible. Are there any benefits to these bio oils that you can buy to massage into scars or, or is that just a you know, bit of a marketing ploy? So there's there's definite evidence that massaging scars is beneficial. So that's step one. So massaging without some sort of lubricant oil is going to be harder than with some sort of lubricant oil. Okay, so, that, so, so we're facilitating the massage. So we're off to a good start. Right. There's evidence that vitamin E will improve scars. The question is how high that dose of vitamin E needs to be. Mm. So there are a lot of products out there that will certainly facilitate the massaging of scars. Some will contain agents such as vitamin E yep. that are said to be beneficial. But even if it's just that the patient has the product and they're actually doing the massage, then that in itself is beneficial. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And then you've got things like lasers and resurfacing and all these sorts of things that seem to be forever improving and and with less downtime and risks like the fractionated resurfacing and things like that. Is that something that you would probably potentially recommend to patients who want to minimize these scars? I I do know that that wounds will mature over about 12 months and there will be times where a patient's scar is not heading down the path that I want it to or expect it to and that's when we might implement other therapies so that, you know, injections with cortisone can help hypertrophic keloid scars there'll be times where you know lasers to address redness in scars are going to be appropriate and then there'll be times where just allowing time to unfold is going to be the best option but there are options and they're definitely worth you know exploring Mm -hmm. absolutely um so we should probably talk about costs a little bit um Mm -hmm. sounds like a big procedure, lots of time, lots of planning. Yeah. So I'm assuming the costs are going to be relatively significant. Would that be a yeah, fair so assumption? They, it is a big procedure. And as I, as I sort of try to educate my patients, it's not just a surgical procedure, it's not just mm-hmm. an operation. It's, it's everything in advance of that. It's the consultation, the planning, the operation, the follow-up, and making sure you get the best result possible. So like all surgical procedures cost-wise, we're going to potentially have you know, hospital costs, operating costs, surgeon costs, and anaesthetic costs. And then Medicare does recognize some of these procedures as being medically beneficial. So mm. they then would come to the party on some of the costs, which then means health funds will come to the party on some of the costs. And in essence, everybody is going to require potentially a different operation. They may have been a different health fund. And it's very important that cost-wise, we as surgeons have an obligation to inform patients before they decide to undergo a procedure what those costs are going to be. Mm. And then the cost can be the cost can be substantial. And patients often often say to me that, you know, 
it's either the trip to Europe or the life-changing operation and I'm taking the life-changing operation anytime. Yeah, right. And in, when you start thinking about it in those terms, it's, it's almost like the, the holiday that keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 365 days of the year for the rest of your life. And don't forget, these people may have had the bariatric surgery, which is not cheap. Yes. Huge amount of time off work. Yes. Trying to balance family life and... All the yeah. other stuff. It's this is like a a twelve month commitment, commitment, yeah, it, or more. It truly is for me. It's tr- it truly is not pop on the plane, fly across to Thailand, and pop home again. Yeah, there is there's there's a lot to it, and the patients they, they really do need to be assessed holistically, comprehensively, so that all of those factors are taken into consideration. Okay. Yeah. So I know I'm not going to pin you down to a number, but just so people have got an idea roughly in their head. So when I'm, when you're saying European holiday, we're talking like what, 20, 30 grand or something along those lines. Is that what we're sort of? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably about right. So I'm, I'm very good. This is the, the numbers thing. I'm, I sort of, you know, I'm very good at doing, op- I do a lot of operations. Yeah. And I'm the doctors I like talking about money. I, yeah. <laughs> so I delegate, I delegate to my staff who are very good at you know, knowing what the yeah. hospital costs are and knowing what the anesthetic charges are. Yeah. So, and that's what people need to think too, is it's not just, it's not just a surgeon yeah, fee. It's going to be the surgeon, the anesthetist, the hospital, the operating theatre, does Medicare cover it? What does my yeah, health fund cover? Parts, yeah. So there's all sorts of different variabilities because patients will say to me, you know, how come one person is this and someone else is that? It's like, well, there's because that person was in a health fund and you're not in a health fund or this surgeon has this experience and this person's doing it in this day surgery or they're doing it in a bigger hospital. So there's many variabilities. Mm. And then, Patients just need to find their comfort spot, you know. When they when when the patients when the patients think it's right mm. and they feel it's logical, then they're probably in the right spot. Mm. And there'll be all those different variables that mean one patient will be happy in one position and someone's in a different position. So, one more question before I think we wrap things up: mm. What can we do about? Well, obviously a patient's concern would be the excess skin, but also the stretch marks. Mm-hmm. Now, that's notoriously difficult to treat. So uh-huh. presumably you're going to try and remove as much of those with the tissue before you start stitching back. But is there anything people can do about the stretch marks? or is So that just... I, um, I think about stretch marks as being the holy grail of plastic surgery. <laughs> many have gone on the search, many, many have perished along the way, but no one has come back with a solution. Okay. So unfortunately, stretch marks are where the elastin fibers in the skin have become disconnected. Mm. So it's literally like your tracksuit pants. When that elastic in the waistline loses its spring, mm. it's never going to get its spring back. So the only way we have at the moment to try and fix stretch marks is to remove that excess skin. Okay. Uh, there is, there's a lot of work involving different lasers trying to shrink some of the collagen fibers and there's some, there's some promise with some of those mm. treatment options. Yeah. So some of the lasers will help. Uh, there's there's radio frequency that offers some promise, but still it's one that we're still trying to search for the answer for. So, so I guess it's the same concern for pregnant women when, you know, they get a huge abdomen, stretch marks, and then baby's out and they're left with unsightly marks, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, uh, it often is. It's one of those things that once that, once that elastin fiber has sort of disconnected, then it's never going to really spring back. Do you think there's any evidence to suggest that if you do put the, the vitamin E and the moisturizing as the baby's growing, you could prevent stretch marks or is that just a bit of nonsense? That's one of those good questions where I go, hmm, I'm very good at what I do. <laughs> I think you need an obstetrician. All right. Get an okay. obstetrician. We'll get an obstetrician. Yeah. Get an obstetrician in, ask them about their area of expertise, and they'll probably give you a good answer. Okay. Otherwise, I'm just going to dig myself into a hole. Perfect. <laughs> so, just once again, how can people get in contact with you? Well, hold on. I've got one oh, last. You oh, you already this said is, yeah. You said the last question was the last question. Well, I want to wrap it up holistically. Ah, right. Okay. So, if I am. 200 kilos or mm-hmm. whatever and I've lost a lot of weight or I'm going on the, I'm starting this journey yes how much fore planning do I need before I've even touched with my bariatric surgeon to to be put in touch with someone like yourself like what is the journey what what should these people be doing if they're listening okay so I do I do get patients who haven't started the journey yet and they're looking for where they're heading and that's always beneficial classically I'm, we're thinking about surgical interventions some six to 12 months after your 
commencement of weight loss. Okay. So patients will come to see me, you know, as they're, you know, 20 or 30 kilos from their goal weight, having lost 30, 40 kilos. And it's that point when they start asking the question that it's time to go and get the answers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's probably a good few weeks or months lead time up to the surgical procedures. And then patients start to need thinking about what else is happening in the rest of their lives for the rest of the year. So there's usually, you know, weddings coming and holidays and in their minds they'll have this vision that I'm going to have my operation in June of this year. So they need to be thinking about coming to see me two or three months before that to get well-informed and then get organised. And presumably that helps psychologically. They've got this goal well, that's exactly Set right. in the sand. That's exactly right. So even if someone comes to see me and they are closer to the 200 kilogram mark, I know they're not a candidate for surgery today, but giving them, the, giving them the information they need to then set their own personal goals to get to their outcome mm. is a great benefit. So that's a worthwhile. Yeah. Okay, great. Now you can ask your question. Oh, so how can people <laughs> find you, Dr. Hunt, if they want to get in contact or see your work? or Yeah, so we're based in Sydney geographically and then internet is a great tool. So www.drjeremyhunt.com. No dot, just D-R-J-E-R-E-M-Y-H-U-N-T. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram and the phone is always on. The website will have our phone number and you can get in touch with us via email from there. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in again. No, Appreciate my it. Pleasure. My pleasure. Chat. If you want to come a third time, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I get a bit smarter every week listening to these people coming. Yeah, you're, very, that's, that's you're, you're very witty. I'll give you that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Hard you. ass. <laughs> For our latest news, upcoming episode information and mini video clips of our guests, you can follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. We've also just started a YouTube channel called Inside Aesthetics and we'll be uploading more content and longer videos in the future. 